This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, director of the Bard MBA program, Eben Goodstein, speaks with Hunter Lovins, author of A Finer Future and professor of sustainable management in the Bard MBA. Hunter, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure to be with you. Um, Hunter, uh, your book, Natural Capitalism, was written in 1999, was uh, really seminal in launching the sustainable revolution in business, sustainability revolution in business. Um, mm-hmm. Every major corporation now has got a chief sustainability officer. There are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are now professionally employed to kind of engage in the mission that you envision. And for me, what was really powerful about that book was the claim um, that in order to solve the social and environmental problems of the earth, uh, we could actually develop profitable business models that would advance those causes. And in fact, if we didn't, those causes would never get advanced because the best way to spread solutions around the earth is for them to be profitable, not subsidized. And that that was just an incredibly powerful insight that was really fleshed out beautifully in that book. Your new book, A Finer Future, uh, written with Stuart Walls, Anders Wigman, and John Fullerton, uh, just out now, um, I think is actually more important uh, because it moves a bit beyond kind of that technology vision to address the broader questions of of political economy, inequality, uh, the policy obstacles that stand in the way of this kind of future. And I hope it's it's equally uh, influential and powerful over the next 20 years. So broadly speaking, how has your thinking uh, evolved uh, uh, since 1999 when you wrote Natural Capitalism to today, 20 years later, uh, when you're coming out with A Finer Future? When we wrote Natural Capitalism, to some extent, we were going on guts and a few examples. So, for example, uh, Ray Anderson at Interface had said he was he was going to make Interface the first company of the next industrial revolution because he said there was nothing about his business when he had this recognition in about 1995 that was at all sustainable. He set about doing that for the right reasons. He said it's the right thing to do. He and I were sitting together in 2001, and he looked at me in this puzzled sort of way, and he said, everything I'm doing to make Interface a more sustainable company is enhancing shareholder value. That wasn't why he did it, but that was the outcome. And what he did, starting with efficiency, using all resources dramatically more productively, then moving on to biomimicry and trying to redesign how he made and delivered all of his products, and committing he said, to being restorative, we've since changed that to being regenerative. Those are the three principles of natural capitalism. We learned them by working with Ray as he sought to implement sustainability across his business. We argued, and he proved, 
that doing this would be more profitable. We now have abundant evidence that that is true, which we didn't really have in 1999. We thought it was true. It has turned out to be true in spades to the point where CDP, which used to be Carbon Disclosure Project, showed in 2014 that the companies that were leading in measuring and managing their carbon footprint had 18% higher return on investment than the laggards, 67% higher than companies that said, climate change, that's not real, we don't care. There are now well more than 50 studies showing that the companies that are leading in environment, social, and good governance policy have, take your pick, the highest stock value, the fastest growing stock value, well outperform the market, outperform their peers, have more engaged workforces. A better engaged workforce will give you 16% higher profitability, 18% higher productivity. Every aspect of what we call the integrated bottom line that behaving responsibly to people and planet is simply better business has turned out to be proven just again and again and again. But now, gosh, 20 years later, more, we're losing every major ecosystem on the planet. We're in a climate crisis. Uh, so whatever it was that we did wasn't enough. We thought, well, just put out the numbers, put out the argument, put, put out the logic and people will change. And indeed business has in many ways stepped up and businesses are cutting their costs and doing all of the, uh, the more responsible things because they're profitable. And yet we have been flying in the face of a narrative that says that it's good to be greedy and we don't really need government because markets are perfect and in this perfect market, you against me will somehow aggregate to the greater good for all of us. No, it won't, and it hasn't. We now have soaring levels of inequality greater than before the Great Depression. We have studies from folk like Dr. Richard Wilkinson, Dr. Kate Pickett, Thomas Piketty showing that high levels of inequality are causative of collapse. Don't do this because it will put you in a very bad mood, but if you Google near-term human extinction, you'll get 33 million hits. Some arguing that humans go extinct within 10 years, many arguing that we are on the road to collapse and purporting to show good science behind all of this when rabbits are threatened, they freeze. When humans are threatened, we entrepreneur. And the point of the book, A Finer Future, is that we have all the technologies we need to solve the crises facing us. Let's go, let's build a finer future. But that to do this, we need a new story of who we are as human beings, what it is that we want, and then how it is that we can best achieve a world in which all of us flourish, as opposed to today's world where eight men, and they're all men, have as much wealth as the 3.5 billion poorest people on earth. 67 million human beings are now refugees, many of them from 
climate-caused failure of governments. And the scientists tell us by 2040, the Middle East will be too hot to inhabit. Where are all those people going to go? In a crisis, I think the answer is to change the story. I want to come back to that story, that story question, because that's really the center of this book, and which why I found it so compelling. <clears throat> but one of the things that I've always admired about your work is that, you know, you, you, you're not shy about diagnosing the, the, the extent of the problem um, and, and really facing uh, the world we live in. But on the other hand, you uh, just live in this world where you're exposed to uh, so many people doing so many interesting things uh, that could get us out of this mess. And um, you and I have been talking about Tony Seba's work and his prediction that we're actually going to wake up in 2030 having accidentally solved the climate crisis. And maybe you want to just give people a little of that a taste of what kind of might be coming down the pipe. Sure. My friend Tony Seba is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, teaches at Stanford, says inevitably by 2030, for fundamental economic reasons, the world will be 100% renewably powered. These four reasons and then one business model are the fall in the cost of solar. And early in 2017, predictions were made that the cost of solar would fall below two cents a kilowatt hour. Right now, when you pull electricity out of your grid, if, <laughs> if you're in New York City, you're probably paying around 18 cents a kilowatt hour. The national average is around 11 or 12. And indeed, in October of 2017, the Saudis commissioned an 800 megawatt solar array at two cents a kilowatt hour. Tony's second driver was fall in the cost of storage, batteries. And last year when Southern California Edison was fretting over the fact that their natural gas well at Aliso Canyon had blown up and spewed methane all over the place, but they weren't going to have enough gas to run their natural gas power plants to keep the lights on in Southern California or the air conditioners running through a hot summer. Elon Musk said, well, that's fine. Let's build a big battery. And he did in world record time and at a price point roughly equivalent to building a natural gas peaking plant. There are now 500 million businesses around the United States who would benefit from putting in batteries so that at peak times, they don't have to pull electricity from the grid. The cost of batteries is falling dramatically. China has 20 gigafactories coming online in 2020 to churn out batteries. And companies like Simplify in Southern California are making not the lithium-ion cobalt batteries like Tesla is. Cobalt's a conflict mineral, and it's rather toxic, and it gets hot, which is why the airlines tell you not to put batteries in your checked baggage. They make a lithium ferrous phosphate battery that does not get hot which is why the military has been using it at forward operating bases in Afghanistan. It doesn't have a heat signature, therefore it doesn't attract heat-seeking missiles. And when Hurricane Maria took out uh, Puerto Rico, it also took out Dominica. So Simplify partnered with Sesame Solar and they built containers, the sides of which turned themselves inside out to have solar panels from Sesame 
the guts of which are a whole bunch of Simplify batteries, ship these containers to any place that has lost power because of a hurricane or whatever, and you have a little microgrid sitting there good to go. Elon also put a 100 megawatt battery in in South Australia in 100 days. He said, if I don't get it done, uh, you don't owe me anything, which is why people who are waiting on his cars have had a little bit of a delay while he <laughs> sends batteries off to prove uh, that the future is electric. Tony's third driver is the electric car. China has said they're going to phase out the internal combustion engine. And General Motors has said, our future is electric. There are 500 electric car companies now in China. That's a quarter of the world's car market. And then the fourth driver is the autonomous electric vehicle, which Tony says will cut the cost to you of what it is you want, which is to get from here to there, tenfold below what it costs you today to go out and buy, fuel, maintain, insure a private vehicle. At a tenfold drop in cost because of a new technology throughout history, you have had disruption. The business model is transit as a service and indeed storage as a service. There are now companies offering you battery storage at peak time. So you just sign up for a subscription with them when you would otherwise be paying the utility, say in Tucson on a summer afternoon, 49 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity, you're paying this service, say, 4 cents a kilowatt hour. Now, you put all these technologies together, says Tony, and inevitably by 2030, the world is 100% renewably powered. We need a sixth as much land, or six as much vehicles running around to get us from here to there, which means all the land that's now used for parking can be freed up for what? Affordable housing or parks or whatever it is that cities want to use it for. So we are looking at a, at a potentially very attractive future. We've solved half the climate crisis. We have stopped emitting carbon into the atmosphere. And at the same time, we have, unless we handle this transition very intelligently, crashed the oil, gas, coal, uranium, nuclear, utility, auto industries, the banks that now hold paper in all of these, the insurance companies and pension funds that are invested in them. This has the potential to be the mother of all economic disruptions. So we solved the climate crisis and crashed the economy. And in, in the book, A Finer Future, we walk through what the risks of this are and then why it's important to get about implementing the transition now while we, have, while we still have some time. And interestingly, just last week, a group called the New Climate Economy released a new study showing that decarbonizing the economy would generate $26 trillion in economic benefits between now and 2030. So again, we know that solving these problems is profitable. The, the interesting question is, will we? Well, let's, um, yeah, I want to talk about the other half to, uh, of this issue, which is 
kind of the carbon negative side and your work in agriculture. But I will note, I've had conversations with three uh, car experts who I trust uh, in the last year. And I all asked them, you know, at what point is it going to be cheaper for me to get on my app and dial up an autonomous vehicle to come pick me up at my rural state New York house and drive me to work? Cheaper for me to do that than to drive my pickup to work? And they all said 2023. Yeah. Three independent. Yeah, this is this stuff's years. coming at us very coming fast. at us really fast, and it may be that that, that it's, it's not going to be as fast as Tony Siva says, but it's certainly directional. Um, and uh, so let's talk a little bit about you've been doing a lot of work uh, around regenerative agriculture, and you see a lot of potential to go uh, carbon negative in that direction. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, and that's the other half of solving the climate crisis. Carbon in nature is not the world's greatest poison. It's the building block of all of life. It's a threat to us today because it's a resource out of place, the classic definition of pollution. But what if we put it where it belongs, which is in the soil as a nutrient? When the pioneers came across the Great Plains of the United States, they encountered 10 feet of thick black soil. That black was carbon, if you will, young coal. How did it get there? It got there by the coevolution of grasslands and grazing animals. In this case, vast herds of bison, elk. They were dense packed because there were wolves and lions. And if you're a bison and there's a wolf about to eat you, the safe place to be is in the middle of the herd. So everybody's trying to get into the middle. They eat everything, their hooves chop up the soil, they fertilize it, and then they move on because they don't want to eat where they just pooped. They don't come back until the grass has regrown. That action of dense packed animal impact is what put that 10 feet of thick black soil into the Great Plains. Since then, of course, we've been plowing the land, turning it upside down, decarbonizing it, then we spew vast quantities of artificial natural gas, nitrogen fertilizer all over the land that kills the microbes that previously help growing plants take nitrogen out of the, the sky and sequester it in the soil, sequester carbon in the soil. And so we're now down in most of the Great Plains to mere inches of fertile soil. There are projections that we have at most 60 more harvests in the world before we run out of the capacity to grow crops. We're probably one famine, one bad harvest away from famine in much of the world. And in 2010, when temperatures shot up in Russia and there were fires all over the place and the Russian wheat crop failed, the Australian rice crop failed because the Murray-Darling Basin ran dry, we had famine in about 30 countries around the world. This was one of the things that kicked off the Arab Spring, which led to now the civil war in Syria. So agriculture, the way we're doing it, is wholly unsustainable, and yet we know how to manage grazing animals to 
manage cropland, as Rodale Institute has shown, to put carbon back into the soil. Take the example of a farmer named Gabe Brown in outside of Bismarck, North Dakota. Gabe was going broke trying to be a commodity corn soybean farmer. He said, I'm going broke. I cannot afford to keep buying all of these artificial inputs, maintain all the machinery it takes to farm this way. So he first went to no-till. He stopped plowing the soil. Then he went to cover crops. He planted 26 species of cold and warm season crops that covered the soil. This cooled the soil in the summer. Their deep roots took nutrients deep into the soil. Then he added animal impact, cattle, sheep, goats, managing them so that they're dense packed using electric fences. He has gone on some of his plots, which he started farming, started doing this in about the mid 90s, from 1.3% soil organic matter to now on some of his plots as high as 15% soil organic matter. Native prairie is 7%. Gabe is rolling climate change backward. Oh, and by the way, he is vastly profitable. He can't keep up with demand. So a couple of things. One was uh, just sort of harking back to natural capitalism. You know, one of the principles, as I recall, was, uh, was business as a service and just interesting transported energy is moving in that direction. Um, but um, so, so we've got these, we've got prog- we, we have opportunities, we've got profitable industries building around a rapid and radical transformation of the energy sector. We could see rolling back carbon if we could move towards uh, widespread implementation of these regenerative agricultural practices. Um, and yet half of your book is really not about these technology options, but about the story that's been holding us back. Um, and uh, I think most people are familiar with kind of the, uh, the neoliberal perspective uh, and the idea that you know, we've been governed by an elite that has a, a sense that, uh, you know, government regulation is bad really ever since Reagan, kind of government is a problem, conservatism. Um, so that that's the problem. How do you see moving to a new narrative and what, what does that look like? And, and how do we how do we tunnel through the barriers that are holding these technologies and these businesses back? That, I think, is now the most important question before us. The technology is cool and it's a lot of fun, but getting the story straight is what will enable us to transcend the practices we have today that aren't working. I think we start by asking, who are we as human beings? The neoliberal story is that we're greedy bastards. The Archaeologists, anthropologists, evolutionary biologists tell us that's not true, that humans are on the planet today because our ancestors, the pre-humans, not only had a drive to acquire and once they acquired to defend what they had just acquired, but more importantly, they had a drive to bond. They cared more for the good of the whole group then each one of them cared for him or herself. They worked together and they cared. 
we know this from the DNA. Apparently, most of the tribes of prehumans went extinct. The ones that did not go extinct took care of their elderly, took care of people who were deformed. And again, we know this from the archaeology. And you and I are here because our ancestors cared. They took care of each other. They cared for more than just being greedy bastards. This is not a bug to be overcome by ever stricter markets or austerity. This is who we are as human beings. And this, the fourth drive that we have is the drive to comprehend, to make meaning, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And you put these together and you get a very different basis for organizing an economy. And in this narrative, government is important. Government is something we created to help solve our problems. It isn't the burden on the back of business. If you think business would do better without government, uh, go to Somalia. It's a functional chaocracy, and it's a lousy place to do business. Business needs a level playing field. It needs the rule of law. It needs a set of rules within which to compete like crazy, but also to cooperate. We're learning now from the biologists that nature is much more about cooperation than it is tooth and nail competition. And it is the companies that work together, for example, on pre-competitive solutions to problems that face their entire industry that do better than those that try autarkically to stand alone. And so we walk through what John Fullerton calls the principles of a regenerative economy. And from this argue that we can build a finer future. When we do this, again, it will be vastly more profitable and it'll be a hell of a lot more fun to live in. You know, we've talked about uh, sort of the cynicism about government that has, you know, for, uh, I think as part of the neoliberal narrative has kind of invaded the entire political space. Um, and, um, and obviously in the US, things are very challenging at the federal level, but, um, do we need kind of the, the national government really now, or is it, can we get a lot done kind of at the more local level where democracy can be more vibrant and real? We absolutely can get a great deal more done at the local level. You know, for example, energy efficiency, the problem is the cracks around your window. Washington's never heard about your window. And so locally based programs to help you fix up your house are the core, are the foundation of, for example, the, the energy part of saving the climate crisis. And yet at the same time, if we have a federal government hell bent on making our country uncompetitive by slapping tariffs on trading partners willy nilly, by trying to subsidize fossil energy. This is a problem. We would be better served to, for all of us to become locally politically active. Go meet your city council. If you don't know their first names, they sure don't know yours. Go meet your county commissioners. Go meet your state representative. They all have offices. They all have office hours. They are there to serve you. And for God's sakes, vote. 
it matters that you get involved. Politics is a contact sport. It's not a spectator sport. If you don't vote, you deserve what you get. But this election, these elections that are coming up, if you don't vote, you may be condemning humankind to a very unpleasant future. We have the capacity to elect good people who will implement good governance. And the fourth section of the book, Systematic Change, Policies to Get Us Out of This Mess, <clears throat> walk through ways in which we can restructure national governments, restructure local governments, be personally active in ways that will give us this finer future. Policy does see. matter. I mean, you and I argue over the, the relative strengths of business and policy, mm -hmm. but I'd be the last one to say that policy isn't important. It's what's going to enable us to solve these problems. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the reasons, one of the questions here is, you know, if the market's going to fix this automatically, right? If, you know, the regenerative agriculture is so profitable and renewable energy is so profitable, why does it even matter if we're politically active? Well, as I said, uh, left to its own devices, crisis and crash the global economy, sorting all this out is going to require good policy. As you've been working on this book, A Finer Future, you have been teaching at the Bard MBA program. Uh, and you've been doing that for about eight years now um, as one of the co-founders. Um, what, what, how, how is kind of your experience as a teacher or professor kind of fed into your thinking about uh, what you need to be communicating and what you chose to put into this book? It used to be that teaching was the sage on the stage. You stood up there and lectured to your students and they nodded appreciatively and took notes and went away. Change comes when people get engaged. And so the way that I teach is to put my lectures onto video recordings. The students can watch those at their leisure. And class time is then conversation. And I say to my students, for the next two years, you're my pupils. After that, you're my colleagues. So let's start that relationship now. If I say something and you think I'm wrong, please say so. You could well be right. So I say to the students, the, the world needs you. It needs you to get engaged. It needs you to bring the very best that's in you. It needs you to think. It needs you to learn the kinds of skills that we teach people about leadership, about how to manage everything from how to do books and how to manage bookkeepers to how to do marketing and all of the disciplines of business. But what it really needs is for you to show up and for you to care. We are talking with Hunter Lovins about her new book, A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. Uh, it's written with Stuart Wallace, Anders Wiegmann, and John Fullerton. Um, Hunter, Hunter teaches in our uh, BART MBA sustainability program. She flies in from wherever she happens to be on the planet once a month to teach in the program. Uh, the course she teaches is Principles of Sustainable Management. Um, and Hunter, are you planning to be using this book as a textbook in the course? Absolutely. I want my students to have access to this. Great. And it really is kind of a roadmap for I mean, in many ways, it, it, it reflects the class you teach. 
It does. And many of uh, much of what my research in preparing for class has gotten poured into the book. I've also uh, shamelessly borrowed from my friends and colleagues. Uh, Alex Steffen, who is one of our movement's better writers, loaned me the beautiful piece that he uh, speech he gave to uh, a conservation group that's titled uh, A Talk Given to a Conservation Group 100 Years from Now. And in it, he says, if today in the 22nd century, we live in an era of optimism and hope, it is because some of our ancestors in the dawn of the 21st lived in a time of clarity and commitment. When they understood the planetary crisis they faced, their answer was not cynicism or surrender, but to seek out others and together meet that crisis with action. When they rose in the morning, they put their hands to not only the common task of providing for their families and communities, but the exceptional work of honoring their kinship with those who would live in generations to come and laboring on our behalf to leave a brighter green world. When they sat to eat together, they not only nourished their bodies, they nourished their connection to earth itself and reminded themselves that humanity lives within this planet, not apart from it. When they looked at the world, they taught themselves to see with fresh eyes, eyes that saw the world not as a thing, but as a vast intricate dance of flows and systems, seasons and cycles. They understood that we are only a small part of all that. They understood that we're all in this together. When they dreamt, they dreamt of rain and forests, rivers and prairies, oceans and reefs, of fishing and farming and lives lived outdoors. They dreamt of stewardship and healing, wonder and discovery. They dreamt of humanity coming home again. When they took counsel together, they felt the hopes of their children's children's children keeping them company. They made ambitious plans. When they rose to speak, they spoke not for themselves, but for the human possibility and the renewed bounty of life on earth. They spoke for bold action. They got to work knowing time was short. Where these ancestors gathered, heroes gathered. And when they departed, they had given us back our future. To learn more about A Finer Future and to purchase your copy, visit OurFinerFuture.com. Join us for the next episode of The Impact Report on Friday, November 16th when we'll be speaking with Matthew Hollis, founder and CEO of Elitis. For our complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. BARD MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at mba.bard.edu.